You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we are starting a discussion about a topic that every year is on the mind of waterfowl hunters all across North America. In fact, it has to be because it has implications for what we can and can't do as waterfowl hunters. And it's something that always generates a lot of questions, discussions, debates, and heck, even a few arguments depending on whose company you're keeping. If you haven't guessed it by now, we're going to be talking about harvest management for waterfowl, specifically the process by which hunting regulations are set. This is going to be a multi-part series, and at this point, we really don't know how many episodes it's going to require because we have a lot of information to cover. We're going to go all the way back to the start of waterfowl harvest management in North America, back to the late 19th century. Uh, We're going to talk about how it began, how it evolved, and how it currently exists. Along this journey, we're going to be speaking with a number of guests from different parts of North America, different professional backgrounds, different eras, and so forth. Today, we're going to start at the beginning, how it all came to be that we have this federally rooted, multi-jurisdictional system of waterfowl harvest management, and what are the legal foundations for it. All this began in the late 19th and early 20th century, and I'm delighted to welcome in two guests that can bring a lot of experience and knowledge to these first few discussions not because they were alive at the turn of the century, although some of our common colleagues and friends might accuse them of being so, but because they have held positions that have allowed them to see firsthand how the harvest process works, and they've been active participants in it. So with that, let me welcome in Dale Humberg, former DU chief scientist, and Ken Babcock, former director of operations for DU Southern Region, and he actually retired from DU as a senior director of operations So, Dale and Ken, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Hi, Mike. Glad to be here, Mike. Okay, so the first thing we need to do, guys, is introduce you to our listeners. Uh, Dale, you've been on the the podcast here before. We're going to get to you in a minute, but Ken, this is your first time here. So, why don't you introduce our listeners to to your background and some of the positions that you have held, specifically prior to coming to DU, that qualify you very well to have this discussion. Ken? Well, thanks, Mike, and it's great to be here and be with you and Dale both. Uh, I guess my professional career in, in waterfowl began uh, uh, as a teenager growing up in northeast Arkansas, uh, where I learned to appreciate waterfowl in the Black River bottoms and the St. Francis River and places in northeast Arkansas. I uh, went to LSU, uh, Go Tigers, uh, and got my, got my master's degree in, uh, uh, in wildlife management, and uh, then I began my Truly, my professional career uh, working for the Mississippi Game and Fish Commission uh, as the waterfowl biologist for three years in the late 60s. And then I joined the Missouri Department of Conservation as waterfowl biologist uh, in in 1970. And I held that position until uh, 1977, at which time I lost my mind and 
went to the central office uh, in Jefferson City and worked in several capacities until I retired in 1997 as assistant director for the department. In 1997, I joined Ducks Unlimited staff. Uh, uh, I told people when I when I retired from the Missouri Department of Conservation, I no longer had to had to apologize for having webbed feet because I was working for an organization that really appreciated that. And I mm-hmm. uh, began my career with DU as the director of uh, the Southern Regional Office uh, and then uh, was there for 10 years and then moved into the headquarters and worked as a senior director of conservation programs. Uh, and for a period of that time, I oversaw uh, and supervised all four of Ducks Unlimited's regional offices. And I retired in uh, in 2013, but I continue to stay involved uh, both as a volunteer and I've done a little, continue a little work uh, in the in the boreal forest that Ducks Unlimited oversees. Well, Ken, thank you for that introduction and thank you for your service over the years to the natural resource conservation field, both in, well, all the states where you've worked and then certainly once you came to Ducks Unlimited, I think there was a time where uh, you might have even been my supervisor there out of the southern region, but I think soon after I uh, might have missed you by a year or two on in that regard. I can't exactly recall, but uh, but nevertheless, I have heard you describe yourself as a you know a self-professed a duckaholic. And so I, I thank you for that. And thank you for all the work, great work that you've done for DU and that the, that you continue to do in that regard. Dale, I want to want to go to you now. You and Ken have overlapped one another for an, a number of years. So uh, just give us some background on, on your professional career and, and what you're doing now. Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, I'd like to think that I started my duck education, if you will, with my dad in a duck boat in the late 1950s um, for whatever reason. And I think it's uh, something that you catch and you can't get rid of. I, I became a duckaholic uh, by by the late 50s. Um, I was really fortunate when Ken lost his mind and went to the central office because uh, <laughs> that opened up the waterfowl job in, in Missouri. Uh, after I worked in Iowa for a, a number of years, uh, banding ducks and all the really fun stuff, uh, Ken had gone to the central office. I applied for and was able to serve as Missouri's waterfowl biologist for 25 years. Uh, following that, I moved to the central office for a few years as the chief of the science group. And then at that point, uh, was able to come to Ducks Unlimited and in full-time waterfowl, which was kind of the, the pinnacle of a, of a career for somebody that's built like we are. So with that, um, I just uh, I can't imagine having a, a better and uh, more interesting career than, than I've had in waterfowl. Dale, thank you for that. And, and I will echo the same that I said to, to Ken. You and I have worked together quite closely here over the past 10 years. I've enjoyed those years and enjoyed sort of all the, all the mentorship that you've provided to me. So just a personal thank you here on the, on the podcast. Sometimes I take, uh, I, I take some privilege to do that. And so thank you for that, Dale. And thanks for joining us here again on the podcast. Um, you know, I, as we get into this, I think the first thing that I need to do, obviously you've described, each of you have described your histories working for a state agency, multiple state agencies. Um, and some people are going to be familiar. A lot of our listeners, in fact, are going to be list, familiar with the process by which waterfowl harvest regulations are set. And they know that the states play a very crucial role in that. And and that's the those are the years from which you drew the experience and your familiarity with this process. I've said it before on previous episodes, and I'll, I'll repeat it again here. Ducks Unlimited 
as an organization and as uh, employees of this organization do not have seats at the decision-making table for waterfowl harvest management. We, we do participate on some of the, the flyway uh, tech sections just as uh, to help represent some of our habitat conservation and management activities. And so we as, as DU employees are able to hear some of these conversations, but you, uh, the, the two of you, when you held your state agency positions, you were actively involved in that decision-making process at multiple levels, at the technical level, as well as the council level, as, as people will hear as we get into these conversations. So that is the firsthand experience that you bring to this. So I just want to kind of clarify that. With that said, I think we need to, we need to jump right into this. As I introduced, we're going to go back to the late 19th century, which is where we have to start when we talk about the management of migratory birds in North America. And Ken, I want to start with you on this. I guess what we want to do is just sort is set the stage for what was happening in the late 19th century with regard to the, the harvest, the sale, uh, and all of the uses of migratory birds and the concern that was emerging because of that, at, at the time, unreg unregulated use of migratory birds. Uh, and then that will take us into the early 1900s and some key pieces of legislation that tried to um, try to put migratory birds in a better position with respect to their long-term sustainability. So Ken, take us back to the late 19th century through, through the work that you've read uh, and through the stories we've heard to, to set this up, what was happening back in those days? Well, of course, we all know that uh, our country was settled um, mostly by people who found their way to to this continent from Europe, uh, and they had seen the demise of wildlife in many parts of the country from which they came. And when they found their way to the to the New World, uh, they found an abundance of wildlife that uh, looked like could last forever. Uh, there didn't seem to be any end to the availability of of wildlife and waterfowl certainly fell into that. Uh, but uh, as the country grew, as more people found their way here, as habitat was destroyed in order to feed people, they began to see the decline in uh, in in all wildlife and including uh, including waterfowl. They even saw some species of migratory birds like the passenger pigeon disappear, uh, become extinct. And so all of a sudden the concern for the sustainability, the future of wildlife, including waterfowl, became a public concern. By this time, uh, based upon the Constitution of the United States, a lot of the power for controlling and managing and regulating harvest of wildlife, including waterfowl, was left with the states. And uh, as we went into the to the early 1900s, that was the situation. A very definite concern had begun to emerge about the sustainability and the status of waterfowl, and uh, the interest in doing something about it uh, was there, but it was not equal uh, among the states, as you might guess. Well, Ken, I know in the early 1900s, there were some key pieces of legislation that uh, that that began to move us in what we'll say is the right direction, and let's talk about one of those, uh, the the Lacey Act. For the, for our listeners that may not be aware, set that up. Tell us what it was and what it tried to accomplish. Sure, uh, the Lacey Act, uh, which was enacted by the U.S. Congress in 1900, uh, prohibited uh, game taken illegally 
in one state to cross uh, state lines into another. So this was the first uh, meaningful effort of among the state agencies, the state governments, to recognize that uh, they needed to work together if they were going to protect uh, wildlife. And and I would suspect, at least from my standpoint, the fact that waterfowl and other bird species were migratory, this was probably the uh, the basis upon which this kind of thing occurred. Although uh, the differences in regulations among states, uh, the Lacey Act that uh, prohibited taking the game that was illegal taken in one state across the state lines was a, a step in the direction that has led us to where we are today. Yeah, and I just want to clarify, I've oftentimes uh, overlooked this mentally whenever I'm thinking about or talking about the Lacey Act, but you've certainly you've certainly said it, but I just want to emphasize is that the, the Lacey Act was not specific, was not exclusive to migratory birds. It was, uh, m- matter of fact, I have the language here, it, it made it uh, illegal at a federal level to import, export, transport, sell, receive, acquire, or purchase in interstate or foreign commerce any wildlife that was taken, possessed, transported, or sold in violation of any law or regulation of any state or in violation of any foreign law. And so the one of the key words there is any wildlife. It was not just migratory birds. It covered any, any game or any wildlife that was taken illegally. And I guess what it would have done, Ken, is in those situations where a uh, where a game violation would have occurred in one state and then the person responsible for that violation tried to evade jurisdiction of that state by going into some other uh, state jurisdiction. You know, the, the Lacey Act effectively um, gave the federal gave federal authorities the ability to go and prosecute those individuals, thus eliminating their ability to evade violation of state laws by just moving over into the other state where they uh, were, you know, the jurisdiction would have changed. So do I have that right? You got it. You nailed it. All right. So all my instructors from back in the day of, of uh, university can, I guess, take some pride that I, I remembered a few things. I had to polish up on it before we had this podcast, but that's the way it always goes, right? Um, okay. So I know, Dale, we're going to come to you here in a few minutes, but uh, Ken, there were a few other things that happened as we got in uh, a few years later in the 1900s. Uh, people began to focus a bit more specifically on migratory birds. The Lacey Act was uh, w- was something that was helpful and needed, but I don't think it it fully addressed our issues. So talk about uh, about that. How did we get from the Lacey Act in 1900 to the the next big piece of legislation in the early uh, early teens? Uh, well, in 1913, uh, the Weeks McLean Act was uh, uh, enacted by by Congress, and this was the first attempt by the U.S. government to control uh, the take, uh, the protection of migratory birds. It gave this authority to regulate hunting seasons uh, nationwide uh, to the Secretary of Agriculture at that time. And the Weeks-McLean Act uh, uh, stated pretty clearly that all wild geese, swans, brant, wild ducks, snipe, plover, woodcock, rail, all of these migratory birds were protected by inaction of the of the Weeks-McLean Act. As you might guess, uh, states who had become accustomed to controlling regulations, harvest regulations within their boundaries, uh, didn't take very kindly to that. Uh, but uh, that was the beginning. And, and actually, the U.S. government reached out to uh, other countries 
to try to get them to cooperate with this, but there was no enabling legislation that uh, that required this international uh, authority. Yeah, and, and so as we'll touch on here in a minute, the Weeks-McLean Act did face some some constitutional challenges, uh, ultimately leading to a few other things that became very, very significant in the history of migratory bird management. We're going to get to that in a minute. Dale, I want to go to you right now, though. We've talked, uh, Ken has introduced you know, the uh, market hunting and the other exploitation, uncontrolled exploitation that was occurring in the late 1800s. And, you know, quite frankly, even before that, as, as long as... Um, as long as we'd been here after settlement, but it really came to a head, began to come to a head in the late 1800s. And just, they all talk with us about the severity of of market hunting, why it was, what were the primary purposes for market hunting and how, you know, what were the, what were the widespread consequences of that? You know, it's hard to imagine the mindset of the day uh, with uh, wildlife, uh, you know, think of the clouds of passenger pigeons and the numbers of, of wildlife that people had available to them. And, and there really wasn't a sense of any limit to their numbers. And so it wasn't unusual at all for folks to take full advantage of the economic value as well. And thousands of birds would have been shipped to the cities uh, for, for eating and so on. Um, market hunting in terms of the sale of waterfowl and feathers and so on, uh, was just a fact of life. There was a fair amount of anxiety, as you might imagine, a tension between uh, the perception that states, in fact, were uh, subservient to some federal authority with regard to harvest management. So it set up this tension about availability of wildlife, including waterfowl, uh, for any number of uses, unregulated uses, and how that might ultimately be controlled recognized that it was a shoot just 20 years earlier or so that the Supreme Court had stated that states owned wild game within their territories. And so all of a sudden, within over a couple decades, there was a total shift in responsibility and what was allowed. And so as you might imagine, that set up a period of time there where people used to a relatively liberal state of the world uh, with regard to wildlife saw a pretty dramatic change in responsibility and what was allowed. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. And who was responsible? Dale, I know you, uh, I know that both of you have done a great deal of kind of research uh, leading up to to these episodes. Were you able to come across anything that spoke to some of the earliest records of states imposing their own, you know, uh, their, their own regulations to try to curb what they saw with regard to excessive exploitation of migratory birds? So do we have, do we know of any examples of that? We can just imagine back in the day, it was a fragmented system of regulations. Each state 
as you said, uh, assumed responsibility for managing the game and controlling the harvest of game within their within their own boundaries. What do we? Uh, what have we been able to find? I know you've talked about the difficulty of going back and finding some of the historical documents, but what have you been able to find with regard to um, any of the early efforts by states to uh, to constrain some of that that over harvest? Well, certainly there was, and it was hugely variable from state to state. Perhaps most notably is is the nature of what periods of time that states allowed birds to be hunted. Um, uh, there were uh, even in adjacent states dramatic differences in the uh, the season dates. Um, as an example, um, Iowa established seasons that went from roughly uh, April 15 to 1 September as the closed period of time. Just adjacent to Iowa was Minnesota that limited the take outside the dates of 1 January to 1 September. Um, in Missouri, uh, closed period was from 1 April to 1 October. So you're talking here about adjacent states that weren't even comparable. And so the, there was quite a bit of difference in terms of what different states would allow, um, how many birds could be taken, the period of open season. If you look at the early uh, 1900s, for example, in Missouri, um, Season lengths were 198 days up to 228 days. Uh, they'd open up in mid-September and go all the way to the end of April. Right next door was Iowa that had uh, a quite a bit of a different period of hunting. And so the, it's no surprise that folks at that point in time saw the need for some continuity of this migratory bird resource in terms of regulations. The key point there is that they're migratory which really changes the nature of harvest management, if you will, compared to uh, critters like quail or deer or whatever that have a home range that's a few square miles compared to waterfowl that have a range of thousands of miles. And so it kind of set up this tension uh, during that period of time between states and, and the federal government. The other key aspect of market hunting that we need to talk about, at least uh, reference, is uh, is the spring season. That was, it, today we think about hunting migratory birds in the fall. That's their non-breeding season. Uh, but but back in the day, spring hunting, the, the harvest of, of birds during the spring was actually a preferred time of year for some of the, uh, for some of the market, uh, market hunters. So Ken, uh, Give our listeners a bit more context on that. Why? What was what was it about the spring that was so important for market hunting relative to the use of that resource? How it was being sold? Sure. Well, and I'll uh, I'll use as an example uh, my, my my own home state of Missouri. Before the the influx of agriculture into the state of Missouri, Missouri's wetlands and waterfowl habitat were mostly dependent upon fall rises of the rivers that came through the state, putting water uh, out of the banks of the rivers and, and providing providing habitat. Uh, this didn't occur in the fall very often. In fact, the fall of the year uh, was often a, a, a dry time of the year. But in the spring, when the snow melted and the rivers rose, the habitat for waterfowl was a very abundant, and these birds were moving back from their wintering grounds towards their uh, uh, nesting areas, and they were there in great numbers. And that was, in fact, the preferred time of uh, of hunting waterfowl in in Missouri and and other states of the Midwest. Now, as that changed and has changed over the years, as agriculture has become a part of 
managing waterfowl habitat in in these uh, areas that fall use of birds is more predictable. Uh, lands are managed. Uh, state and federal areas have been created. Private clubs have been developed. But in 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 the early days, the numbers of waterfowl uh, in the spring were much higher than they were uh, in the fall. And not only that, being an old Arkansas boy, they were fatter and uh, and juicier to eat. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And also, having spent some time in Louisiana, what can you tell us about uh, the colonial nesting waterbirds and how market hunting intersected with uh, with their life history and when they were pursued primarily relative to their use in in the in the markets in that part of the world and uh you know you could go over and look and see that the first national wildlife refuge was created in florida uh and that was totally driven by the loss of colonial nesting water birds to the market bird feathers were very fashionable they were used in making hats they were used in decorating clothing, and uh, people saw a great decline in the number of, of rookeries, the size of the rookeries that had herons, uh, pelicans, and other kinds of water birds that were important in, in the market area. Just like waterfowl, the drake waterfowl that develop and, and don their, their bright plumage, their breeding plumage in the late fall and in through the winter, and they carry that through the breeding season. Other migratory birds are, are the same way, where they, uh, they develop and, and display their most ornate plumage in the spring that's related to their courtship, their poor pair formation, their, their attempts to, you know, to attract mates. And so that's when they're most colorful, they're most ornate, and those were the times of the years when the market hunters uh, wanted those feathers. That's when the, the feathers that were most in need and most desired were available, I guess is the way I should say that, which led to uh, market hunters actually going to the breeding colonies and harvesting birds out of those colonies, which it doesn't take too many years of doing that to begin to really decimate a breeding population if you're actually shooting the birds that are attempting to breed. You're completely eliminating that reproduction. So a lot of things were going on there and without without regulation of it, invariably led to some problems. And Ken, I thank you for referencing that the first National Wildlife Refuge, Pelican Island in Florida. And, and when you look across other states, uh, Louisiana is a great example where there were some very forward-thinking conservationists that had set aside land to protect some of those nesting colonies that were being overexploited. Um, E.A. Mickelhenny is, is one of those. Uh, Avery Island, the, the manufacturer of Tabasco sauce, quite frankly. There's a long history there. And so uh, people that have visited Louisiana, Avery Island, and toured the, the Tabasco sauce factory, I'm sure we'll have seen a lot of those birds. And so that migratory birds are really cool in that regard. And they, they intersect so many other aspects of society, um, industry and commercial interest, as well as uh, philanthropists and just some really forward-looking individuals and politicians all throughout our history, which makes them pretty fascinating. The connections that they provide to us across multiple jurisdictions, multiple times of the year. Um, certainly one of the things that I find really fascinating about them. Uh, let's see, Dale, anything we want to add here? about the early 1900s with regard to exploitation. We've talked about the Lacey Act. Uh, we've talked about the Weeks-McLean Act. We need to talk about some of the challenges it faced, but anything else to add at this point? Mike, I think the thing that's notable about that time of, of, of our waterfowl history, if you will, is that there was a distinction between commercial hunting 
um, which would have been limiting the, the availability of hunting for the common man, if you will, versus uh, hunting for, for markets and so on. So a distinction between commercial hunting and market hunting is something that sometimes we lose sight of. The, I think the bottom line, it was just an era of, of almost complete unregulated harvest. And so uh, at the point in time when there didn't appear to be an end in sight in terms of numbers of birds, uh, there was an early wake-up call in terms of some of the things that Ken mentioned about uh, taking birds for feathers and, and, and for the markets and so on. So just a, a wake-up call, but it took us a little while to realize it. And then the tension between state and federal responsibility for it led to a, a fair amount of, of painful uh, times, if you will. We're getting close to the point where we're going to reference the most significant piece of legislation to affect migratory birds in North America and perhaps the world. Uh, but before we do that, I want to come back to the Weeks-McLean Act of 1913. Ken has introduced it as the first law to protect migratory birds, prohibiting market hunting, spring hunting, etc. But there were some challenges to that. States maintained that it was their right to regulate game that occurred within their boundaries. And Dale, what do we know about the any of those state challenges? Uh, how far how far in the court system did they make it? How did the rulings go? Yeah, the uh, Weech McLean Act uh, was challenged uh, by a number of states. Um, uh, Arkansas and Kansas in particular challenged it in court. It was ruled to be unconstitutional by two state courts and three federal uh, district courts. And so uh, pending the appeal to the Supreme Court really introduced the, the need to, to think about a different avenue with regard to establishing the, uh, the federal responsibility for, for um, migratory bird harvest management. So, yeah, there was uh, quite a bit of, of anxiety over those early regulations, and it was notable that they, in fact, went to state courts, uh, Supreme Court, and so on uh, with regard to uh, the constitutionality and the, uh, the fact that whether or not that was uh, instituted at all. So the Weeks-McLean Act never, challenges to the Weeks-McLean Act of 1913 never made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Is that right? Yeah, it was, it was pending but it never got there. And in the interim, the folks with uh, perhaps a devious eye toward how to get this done uh, uh, took the, the avenue that ultimately became the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And that's where we want to go next. We're about to the point where we're going to start wrapping this episode up. But uh, Ken, I wanted to throw it back to you for any final comments here on where we are at this point. I told people when we started this, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning and work through this on the evolution of waterfowl harvest management. And some of this is going to deal, a lot of this, at least early on, is going to deal with some legislation and the key aspects of that legislation and challenges to it uh, and what brought it about. So bear with us here, folks. This The history is pretty fascinating to me in this regard, and I hope others will find it as well. But Ken, anything we want to add here as we close out this first uh, episode? One point that I would make in, that re in relationship to, to Dale's comment about the difference between market hunting and commercialization of hunting. Uh, market hunting was very much devastating to uh, waterfowl. And if, if we look back in the history of firearms, for instance, the efficiency and the effectiveness of firearms was really being uh, tuned up during that period of time, making the ability to take large numbers of waterfowl for the market more possible. 
we haven't even really touched on on much of that. I think that's uh, an episode in itself where we talk about the specifics of of market hunting, the tools, techniques they used. I know there have been some articles in previous DU magazines that have spoken to that and tried to take people back in time to imagine what those situations were like, the type of boats, the type of um, you know large gauge guns, punt guns, as many people will know them, uh, were used uh, by those market hunters. That in itself is fascinating. We're not going to delve too far into that in this episode or in, in this series, we are necessarily, as we go forward, going to talk about some of the regulations that were put in place uh, that restricted the, the manner in which waterfowl could be taken, migratory birds could be taken. So that does come in, come into play. Uh, so at this point, we're going to leave those, those topics for future episodes. We've gone about a half hour here and touched on some of the key pieces of legislation early in the history of migratory bird harvest management. So with that, let's wrap up, guys. Dale and Ken, I thank you so much for joining us here. I have to thank you for all the research that you've done leading up to this. I know each of you are are very well positioned just naturally because of your careers to talk about this. But, uh, you know, we're all scientists. We want to get the facts right. So I, I know each of you has done some research leading up to this, and it certainly shows. And I thank you for that. And look forward to recording our future episodes. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode. One of many episodes is going to touch on this topic, Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock. They they both bring firsthand experience and knowledge about, about this process, and we thank them for joining us. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, the digital warrior, for the great job that he does editing these podcasts and getting them out to you. And of course, the listeners, we thank you for your part in this venture. We thank you for spending your time with us here on the podcast, supporting the podcast, and most importantly, for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.